At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning to everybody. We're so glad that you're here, and uh, we're just thrilled to be able to spend some time with you, not only worshiping the Lord Jesus, but also to spend some time around his word. So if you would, please take out the word of God and turn it in the New Testament to the book of Luke and chapter number 15, Luke 15. Those of us who know our Bible are aware that it tells us clearly that God loves us. One place we see that is Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 where Paul writes that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his son. And God giving his son to die for our sins is the supreme example, right, of his love for us. But there's something in a drama of a story illustrating that love that adds deeper insight into God's heart. And that's what we want to look at today, the drama of a story illustrating his love. We want to look at what Charles Dickens called the greatest short story ever. It is a story told by Jesus. It's a story commonly known as the prodigal son. It's one of his parables. And one of the things as you're turning to Luke 15 to remember is that Luke himself was a great lover of Jesus' parables and Jesus' stories. He included more of them in his gospel than the other gospel authors included. In fact, a number of key stories, key parables, Luke includes that are unique to Luke. For example, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. It's unique to the gospel of Luke. The story in the parable of the rich fool, which occurs in Luke 12, is unique to Luke. And then, of course, the story of the prodigal son, which is the longest and the most dramatic parable that Jesus ever told, is unique to Luke. A couple of weeks ago, we began a series of messages we have entitled Core Truth. What do we mean by core truth? Well, core truth is truth that is foundational and fundamental It's truths that are essential to our Christian walk. And here's what happens. When we disconnect from core truth, we lose some of the wonder we have for God. When we disconnect from core truth, we have a loss of joy in our life. Our eternal perspective becomes more shallow, and often our worship is weakened. The first core truth we looked at a couple of weeks ago was the core truth that God knows me. He knows all about me. He meticulously designed me and you. Second core truth we looked at last week is that God is always there, always there. And the truth we have before us today is this. God passionately cares for me. And I want to read a good portion of the parable of the prodigal son From Luke 15, I'm going to read verses 11 to 24, invite you to read along with me. And Jesus said, a man had two sons, 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between the two sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and that citizen sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. No one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, as we approach this story that tells us that he passionately cares for us, there's going to be five elements of what we're going to do this morning. First of all, we're going to take a moment to look at the overall context of this story. And then we're going to share a couple of helpful hints that give us insight into the story as we are working our way through it. And then we're going to see the three sections of the story. We have the younger son's foolish rebellion in verses 12 to 19, the father's passionate care in verses 20 to 24, and then we'll take a brief look at the elder son's hard-hearted self-righteousness in verses 25 to 32. So before we get actually into the meat of the story, let's just set a little overall context for all of this. And in order to do that, we just simply drift back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 where it says there that all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. But both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The context is one of the scribes and the Pharisees having this resentful bitterness and criticism towards Jesus. He is helping these sinful people. We don't like it. And so Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep and then the parable of the lost coin. And the theme that comes out of those is with the lost sheep. In verse 7, he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then after he tells the story of the lost coin, the theme coming out of verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. By the way, sometimes when we read through this, we think, well, it's the angels who have all the joy. That's not what it says. You notice there in verse 10, it says there's joy in the presence 
of the angels. First and foremost, the joy is coming from the heart of God himself. Now, let me just share with you, having just said a little context, a couple of helpful hints. Here's one thing we need to remember. The younger son represents all of us. The Bible tells us in Isaiah, all of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And when we choose the path of sin and rebellion, we're really disdaining God as our creator and our provider. We're choosing to live our life as if he doesn't exist. And so here's something that's very important. It's a helpful hint in this story to remember. All of us are prodigal sons and daughters. Second hint as we move through this story is to remember that the father represents God who passionately cares for us. And as we look at the response of the father in this story, it will give us insights into the depth of the love and the care of God for you and for me. So let's actually move into the story. Let's look at the younger son's foolish rebellion. Now we call this the story of the prodigal son. What is really interesting is that the word prodigal does not appear in the text of most translations. What does prodigal really mean? Well, prodigal can be translated different ways. It can mean wasteful. It can mean excessively lavish. Prodigal could be translated extravagant. All those terms could represent that word. But as we look at the younger son's foolish rebellion, we see his flawed plan in verses 12 to 16, and then we see the road back. It's good to know how the road back goes. We see that in verses 17 to 19. So let's begin by looking at his flawed plan. Look again at verse 12. The younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now, of course, much like our own culture, normally an estate would be inherited at the father's passing. And as we read through the story, one thing we don't really get initially is the cultural significance of this act on the part of the younger son. In that culture, this was highly dishonoring to the father. For him to say, hey, I want what belongs to me and I want it now, was basically saying to his father, I have no desire to submit to your authority. What he was really saying to the father is, I could care less about this family. Really what he was saying to the father was, I would prefer you were dead because I want the results of what would happen when you're dead right now. This younger son was expressing his desire to be on his own, to do his own thing. He said, I want to live life my way. And you could hear now, cue the song by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's what he's saying. I want to do it my way. He was really saying to the father, I, I, really, I really don't care what you think. I want to do it my way. Now, why it was normal for a father to dispense his estate upon death, of course, he could at his discretion divide the estate before that. And that's what he chooses to do. Notice in verse 12 it says, so the father 
divided his wealth between the two of them. That little word that's translated wealth is in the original language, the word bios, B-I-O-S. It's the basic word for life. So think about what the father does here. In one sense, it's saying he handed over his life for his sons. And notice verse 13 says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. Now remember, as we're going through this story, the son is a picture of us. You know, when we say, I want nothing to do with you, God. I don't want to be led by you. I don't need you. I want to go where I want to go. I want to do what I want to do. So with that attitude, he goes on this journey to a distant country, no doubt a place that sounded inviting to him. It sounded exciting to him. By the way, do you know that a distant country for us spiritually is just one step away from God? It's not so much geography here as it is choosing to ignore the relationship with the Father. Notice there in this distant country, he squandered his estate with loose living. Very interesting, colorful language here. When it says he squandered it, it's just words that mean he scattered it. You know, he just flung it out there. He just let go of it all. And he did this with loose living. That word only occurs here in the New Testament, no other place. What does it mean to squander it with loose living? Well, we could say he did it in a prodigal way. He did it in a wasteful way. He did it in an excessively lavish way. He did it in an extravagant kind of way. What was he choosing to do? He, he says, I want to I do it my way. I want to live a fun-filled life as the world defines fun-filled. And so that's what he did. He, he was living in the fast lane. You know, he had the hottest car in town. He had the hippest apartment. He had multiple babes on his arms. You know, he was drinking and partying and gambling. And when you do those kinds of choices in your life, they begin to come home to roost. And so we have verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. What we have here is a picture of a life crash, a picture of what happens with the impact of sin when we choose to walk away from God. By the way, that life crash is often not immediate. At first, everything seems fun and fulfilling. I mean, we're having the time of our life here. But when you make wild side choices, eventually it will suck you into sin's downward spiral. And that's what happens with him. You know, Satan delights in leading us into that sort of a downward spiral. That's why he has the names, nicknames, deceiver and destroyer. You know, and there's, a, there's a term there in verse 14 that we just jump over from a Western perspective when it says there was a severe famine in that country. We, we don't know what that's like. We have no clue. When it says there was a severe famine, it, that, it was worse than the Great Depression in the United States of America. This was a big-time deal. There was no food. You know, we're so used to food. You can always find food somewhere. (laughs) 
not in the midst in that time of a severe famine. No food to be had. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 6 in the Old Testament, it describes a severe famine in Samaria. And one of the things that happens there, get this, someone has a donkey's head, not the whole body of a donkey, but just a donkey's head. And in that severe famine, that donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Men and women, that was 80 months of wages for a donkey's head. Six and a half years of wages someone paid for the head of a donkey. This is a severe famine. And you also learn in, in that text there in Second Kings chapter 6, there are two moms. The famine is very severe. Each one had a baby son. And the first mom said to the second mom, how about if we eat your baby son today and then we can eat my baby son tomorrow? This is real hunger. And so they boil the one woman's son and eat it. And then... The one who'd lost her son or sacrificed her son for their next meal goes to look for the other mom so they can eat her son. She can't find her. She's hiding her son. So when we read this, we need to feel this, okay? There was a severe famine. And, and so notice what how he responds to this. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and that guy sent him into the fields to feed swine. What was his initial response? He's got a big problem here. Hey, I'll work my own way out of this. I'll handle this. That's what prodigals often do. And so he's sent into this field to begin to feed swine. Now, again, this is part of what we don't feel in our culture. It's important to understand what the listeners... Remember, Jesus is telling the story to Jewish people, and when they heard that he was now feeding swine, they cringed. It's like, I'm sure they were like, ah, what? Part of the reason why, of course, was that pigs were unclean to Jewish people. But part of just the shock of it all was that he was feeding the swine, which was the foulest smelling job of all time. It was the bottom-of-the-barrel job. But he was getting no food. He says in verse 16, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. What's he talking about here? Well, I have a picture of this. This is the, the Karab pods that existed in that day. They had hard bean-like like seeds in them. And as you look at that carob pod, just so you understand, if you were feeding your swine, that would be the last choice you would pick to feed your swine. I mean, it's a famine, so they're getting the worst choice. And those carob pods were virtually inedible to a human being. But he's saying, I would love to be grabbing those things and eating them. Can't do it. Can't pull that off. No one was giving anything to him. He was at rock bottom. He's saying, you know what? The pigs are eating better than me. Those of you who are a little older might remember Monday Night Football when Dandy Don Meredith was one of the commentators of Monday Night Football. 
And in Monday Night Football, when he was there, when the outcome of the game had been determined, even though the clock had not run out, he would always sing the song, turn out the light, the party's over. You remember that, some of you are a little older? That's what we have. Cue that song right now. Turn out the light, the party's over. There's an important principle to remember. You might jot this down. Self-indulgence always leads to disaster. I want you to just ponder that for a moment. Self-indulgence always leads to disaster. And here we have the younger son at the end of his rope, which parallels, by the way, our own spiritual problem. Apart from God, we can't atone for our sins. Apart from him, we can't resolve the consequences that are due us from our rebellion. Those consequences are death and judgment. We're helpless to do anything about it. The spiritual dilemma that we faced before God is described by Paul in Ephesians 2.12 as having no hope without God in the world. By the way, do you, do you have a prodigal in your life? You know, I, I have had prodigals in my life, people that I've known over the years, and maybe you have a prodigal, someone who's turned their back on God. How do you pray for a prodigal? Well, here's how I have been praying for prodigals in my life. I pray, God, bring them to the end of their rope. God, make them hungry. God, help them to tire from drinking out of the sewer and turn back again to the living water. We see his flawed plan in verses 12 to 16, but then we see the road back in verses 17 to 19. And it's important for prodigals to understand the road back. And the first step in the road back is realization. Realization. Look at verse 17. But when he came to his senses, I mean, as he's watching the pigs wallow when he's reflecting on his own life, he wakes up to reality. He was facing his own utter helplessness. He, he made an accurate assessment of his situation. He realized he had been wrong. That's a hard word for us to say. There was no, you look at it, there's no rationalization, there's no excuses. He was broken and alone. And the first step in the road back is realization. The second step on the road back is repentance. And repentance brings with it transparency and humility. Look at verse 18. He says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. By the way, that little phrase, sinned against heaven, literally in the original is, I have sinned into heaven. He's saying, my guilt ascends up to heaven. And then we see his humility in verse 19. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I'm not worthy to be son. Just make me as one of the hired men. By the way, that isn't referring to household servants. No, that is referring to the lowest day worker, the ones who got the most menial jobs. And these hired men were often homeless 
just making enough money to eat and live. He says, I'm not worthy to be son, but make me one of those guys. Now, now again, we need to just pause a little bit as we're going through this story. In the mind of the younger son at this point, and also, by the way, in the mind of the listeners to the story when Jesus is telling it, in the mind of the son, in the mind of those who are listening, the best that the son could hope for was a cold scowl, you know, with arms folded from the father. That's not only what the son expected, that's what the listeners expected. The best that he could hope for would be a stern lecture. The best that he could hope for would be this most menial position, if there's any position. So you have realization on the road back, you have repentance, and then there's a third key step, and that is the resolve to return. It's one thing to be thinking about these things. It's another thing to act on it, to act in faith, and that's exactly what he does in verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. Now, again, I just want you to feel what they were feeling when Jesus is telling the story because the cultural expectation is that when this younger son came back, because what he had done was so insulting to his father, they were expecting that the father would reject him, that the father would write him off, forever dismiss him from the family. I guarantee you the Pharisees who were listening to the story being told were thinking, I can't wait, I can't wait to see how the father is going to pummel him, how the father is going to punish him for his actions. But the father's reaction reveals his heart, which leads us to the father's passionate care in verses 20 to 24. So he got up, verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How does that happen? Why did that happen? Because no doubt the father, from a high point on his estate, had been scanning the horizon on a daily basis. He had been praying for his prodigal son. He had been praying that the son would return. So while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Again, it reminds me of those phrases we talked about earlier in our service from Ephesians chapter 2 about how God is rich in mercy. About his great love with which he loved us. About the riches of his grace in kindness. And so the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran. Now, again, we don't really understand this concept, but in that culture, a wealthy, older, dignified man would never run anywhere. They didn't do jog-a-thons. In fact, this word, he ran, is a track term. It's the exact same verb that is used when the women went to the tomb and Jesus was resurrected and they came back and they told Peter and John and Peter and John, same verb, ran to the tomb. So you can imagine what kind of a sprint that was. And so here we have, he sees his son coming, he feels compassion and he starts sprinting as fast as he can do it as an older man. Now, if you put yourself in the story, men and women, it's about this time in the story that tears begin to well up a little bit in your eyes. The younger son is me. The father is God. Saw me, felt compassion, he started 
running in a full sprint. And notice in verse 20, it says, he ran and he embraced him. Literally, it's he fell on his neck and he lavishly kissed him. And important to realize, he most likely still reeked of pigs and pig slop, which is exactly the same stench of sin that was on us when the father ran and felt compassion, fell on our neck and kissed us. See, the younger son deserved the weight of his father's wrath, but what did he get instead? He got this delirious, lavish expression of the father's love. And in verse 21, you know, he starts the speech. He had the whole thing memorized, you know. Father, I have sinned again, you know, on and on. But what happens? The father interrupts it all. Verse 22, his father says to his slaves, quickly, you might underline that adverb, quickly, we don't have any time to waste here, quickly, he says, bring out the best robe. This was the robe that was made of this very expensive material that was highly embroidered that you only would use on the highest of occasions. Literally, he says, I want the robe, get the robe. And then he says, I want you to get a ring and I want you to put it on his hand. That ring would include the family seal, which was a communication of full authority as a son. And isn't that really basically what happened with us? (laughs) Before we fully cleaned up our life while the stench of sin was still on us, he instantly presented to us the robe of his righteousness. While the stench was still there, he instantly granted us full authority as a son. He adds in, I want you to go get sandals. The servants, the household servants didn't wear sandals. They went barefoot, but that's the mark of a son. And then he says, I want to to bring out the fatted calf, which also tells us how wealthy they were because most families couldn't afford to have a special calf that you would feed grain and you would fatten for a special celebration. He says, bring out that special calf. You know, in one sense, this is kind of interesting to think about. We talk about the prodigal son, but in one sense, the father is the prodigal. Remember, one of the ways to translate prodigal, one of the meanings is extravagant, right? One of the meanings is excessively lavish. You know, Tim Keller actually wrote a book called The Prodigal God, That's the one who's really being lavish and extravagant here. And so they start this party, which is right in line with the theme from chapter 15 and verse 7 and chapter 15 and verse 10. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. So it is the spiritual experience of every sinner who comes to the Father. We approach him clothed in rotten, filthy rags of sin, and we receive the robe of righteousness and full privilege as a son of the Father. Why is that? Because God passionately cares for you. I want to remind you, this younger son had not earned forgiveness. He was granted it fully and freely. He was given an unconditional pardon by his father by grace alone. And when we receive his grace and his mercy and his kindness, it is the beginning, even though we may not always feel it, of an eternal celebration. God passionately cares for you. 
You know in this story there's another response, right? It's the response of the older son. And you remember that the older son is a picture of the Pharisees. And one thing you can say about Jesus is Jesus had the Pharisees and the scribes pegged. You know, in in verse 7 of this chapter, when he talks about those who need no repentance, that's how the Pharisees viewed themselves. (laughs) They were impressed with their own goodness. They viewed themselves as spiritually superior to everybody. Jesus had them pegged. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he spoke of them as trusting in self-righteousness, viewing other people with contempt. In Matthew 23, 23, he described them as a brood of vipers on the way to hell. And in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The scribes and the Pharisees spelled salvation D-O. It's something that you do. It's something that you earned. And they were convinced they'd already done it. They'd already earned it. And you can go back and look at this carefully. One of the things you'll notice about the older brother is he really never cared for his younger brother. There's no advice that he gives to the younger brother when the younger brother makes his request. There's no warning, don't go there, brother. In fact, as you look at it more closely, you realize he never cared about what his father cared about. You look at verse 28, and he just has this heart that is enraged and bitter. And you, you know, you see how the, the second son, that rather the younger son, uh, approaches his father. He says, Father, I have sinned. And then you look at how the older son relates to his father in verse 29. He says to his father, look, look, you. Just think of the anger and the bitterness that's coming across there. Utter contempt for the father. No concern at all for the brother. No concern at all for the father's feelings. And then in verse 30, it's interesting, he says, this son of yours when he came. You know, what what a way to talk to your father. This son of yours? You know, not my brother. We have here by the older brothers an assault on the father's character. See, the Pharisees had no appreciation of grace and mercy. You ever ask yourself why? They didn't need it. Who needs grace and mercy when you've earned it all? And you know what's interesting? Even knowing all of this and the way the older brother is relating to the father and what he's revealing about his own heart, you might expect a rebuke from the father. You might expect a lecture to the older brother, yet that's not what you see. Look at what he says at the the end of verse 28. The father came and began pleading with him. And then in verse 30, rather verse 31, the father says to the older son, he says, son, that is the word literally in the original, my child. There's this tender endearment that he has even for the older brother. Why? Why? Because God passionately cared even for the Pharisees. And you go, wow, 
wow, that's amazing grace. God passionately cares for you. I want to share with you a verse from the book of Zephaniah. I don't know how long it's been since you were in Zephaniah. But it's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, which I think communicates how God passionately cares for us. Here's how that verse reads. It says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. We see that in the story. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. All we need to do is to come to him by faith. We're going to talk about that more next time as we look at true faith. As we close today, I want to just share with you some lyrics from one of my favorite songs. It's by the group Casting Crowns. Here's the way part of that song goes. And think about yourself here. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. God passionately cares for you. And men and women, that is core truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this great story of the prodigal son. It's familiar to many of us, but it has so much depth And Father, it's just, we forget that coming to the Father creates a celebration in heaven. And when we think about that every single day all around the world there are sinners who are redeemed, that means every single day the party is raging in heaven. And all that does is remind us that you passionately care for us, and we are grateful, so grateful. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. 